We are with Jesus on a dark night in Jerusalem. Let's return to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. In John 13, the sands of time are sinking steadily toward his arrest. His sham trials will begin later in the night. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. Judas leaves the table to summon the wolves. His false loyalty was the last barrier to a chain of events that would change the world forever. Jesus' betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And we tend to, to treat these events discreetly, but collectively, they are all part of the hour of Jesus' glorification. And Jesus reminds us of that glorification in verse 31. When he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, I have previously explained the hour of Jesus' glorification, so I will not belabor it here. Suffice it to say that Jesus' glorification did not begin with his ascension or even the resurrection. It began with his betrayal and his crucifixion. In John 12, Jesus associated the Son of Man's glorification with a grain of wheat being planted into the ground and dying. So for now, simply observe the connection in verse 31 between Judas' departure and Jesus' glorification. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus could then say, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Little did Judas know that his departure triggered a series of events collectively referred to as Jesus' glorification. However, Jesus' glorification also signals his departure. We cannot follow him immediately. When he says in verse 33, where I am going, you cannot come now, he is not speaking of a permanent separation, but through death and resurrection, he will return to the Father to prepare a place for us. In the meantime, we are left in a fallen, broken world. So, here is a crucial question. If Jesus is leaving... And leaving us behind, what does he expect of us until he returns? 
That is the question that should inform your interpretation of the next two verses, where Jesus delivers a new commandment. What does Jesus expect of us now that he has gone to prepare a place for us? Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that, my friends, is what Jesus expects of us between his two advents. This is our new commandment. The Great Commission is born on the wings of love. But I wonder whether anyone is confused. Haven't we heard this before? What is so new about the new commandment? Well, let's cross-reference at this point with Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Chronologically, we're turning back just a couple days prior to the events of John 13. In Matthew 21... Jesus rode his donkey up to Jerusalem's gate. The final week has begun. And what follows is a huge controversy over his authority. The Jewish leadership will put three questions to Jesus, all of which stem from the issue of authority. The first question came from the Pharisees and the Herodians and concerned paying taxes to the Roman authorities. And Jesus answers the question easily. The second question came from the Sadducees and concerned the resurrection. The Sadducees were actually silenced by Jesus' answer. And the crowds were astonished. Licking their wounds, the Pharisees then returned to put a third question to Jesus. And that brings us to verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend all the law and the prophets. All right, now let's observe four quick points. Number one, first, the lawyer put one question to Jesus, but Jesus gave two answers. It's often been said that a good teacher knows how to make difficult subjects simple, and that is true Unless the subject is overly complex, you can't make it too simple. You can't oversimplify something that's irreducibly complex. The law can be simplified, but not oversimplified. Here are two great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Second, the lawyer focused on the law, that is the Pentateuch. But Jesus' answer included the law and the prophets. This is another way of referring to the entire Old Testament. 
The whole Old Testament taught us to love God and our neighbor. According to Jesus, the dominant ethical commands of the entire Old Testament were a call to love God and love your fellow man. Third, the lawyer's question was appropriate, even if it was hostile. He wants to know whether the numerous complex Old Testament laws are reducible. And the fact that Jesus himself simplified all that complexity tells us there is merit in trying to simplify all those laws. According to rabbinic tradition, the five books of Moses contain 613 commandments. Well, friends, that's a lot to keep track of. How do you constantly keep track of 613 laws on the forefront of your mind? Is there any way we can sort of reduce that? The lawyer wants to reduce and simplify, and Jesus goes right along and reduces and simplifies. All right? And then fourthly, note that Jesus' two commands are ranked. He clearly distinguishes between the first and the second. Both turn our attention away from egotism, pride, and self-centeredness, and greed. That is true. However, Jesus focuses our attention first on love of God, and secondly, on love for our fellow man. All right? So with that in place, let's turn ahead now just a few days to John chapter 13. All right? Matthew 22, just a couple days earlier. All right? John chapter 13, we're turning ahead to this night in Jerusalem. So Jesus has already identified the central commands of the entire Old Testament. Here they are. Love God. Love your neighbor. What that means is love was Israel's foremost command in the Old Covenant. In the upper room, Jesus will introduce the New Covenant. And at the central command of the Old Covenant was love. What then is the central command of the New Covenant? Answer, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So are you confused? How is this a new command? Well, love is not a new virtue. The whole Old Testament ethic concerned loving God and loving man. So what on earth is Jesus talking about? It's actually quite simple. Jesus is not talking about a new virtue, but a whole new kind of love. In the new commandment, Jesus calls for a radically new kind of love that tells the whole world we are his disciples. Love one another this way, just as I have loved you. That is the new command. Love like Jesus loved. And you're probably saying that's impossible. Of course it's impossible. Do you recall the Sermon on the Mount? 
Jesus did not scrap the whole law. Rather, just as Jeremiah 31 predicted, he drilled it right into our hearts. And when he did so, we all said, that is impossible. It's not enough to say, I love my spouse, so I just never commit adultery. Try saying, I love my spouse, so I will never again have another lustful thought in my heart. Is that possible? It's not enough to say, I love my brother, so I refrain from murder. Try saying, I love my brother, so I won't harbor the slightest little hatred or inkling in my heart of hatred for my brother. Is that even possible? It's not enough to say, well, I love my brothers. Try saying, I love my enemies and those who persecute me. The new covenant intensifies the old covenant to such a degree that we recognize it's humanly impossible. Nobody can do this. So where does that leave us? Right here, it leaves us looking for a new mediator. The whole new covenant is impossible Without a better mediator. That's what Hebrews chapter 8 says. Jesus Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. Jeremiah 31 is fulfilled through Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. What that means is I, I need Jesus Christ to keep the law for me. Not one jot or tittle will he neglect until he's fulfilled the whole thing. I need Jesus Christ to be my substitutionary atonement, to take away my deserved punishment for my transgressions of the law. And I need the same Holy Spirit who indwelled Jesus to come and fill me and transform my heart from the inside out. And then, and only then, I begin to love as Christ loved. Because I have a spirit in me, transforming me. And when that happens, the world knows I am a disciple. And that is the new command. When you embrace Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant, when you are born again... You begin to take those little baby steps toward loving your brothers. So to summarize, love was indeed the heart of the Old Covenant. Love God, love your neighbor. And now the new command tells us that nothing less than perfect love is the heart of the new covenant. And if you have not yet achieved perfect love, and that's all of us, all right, then we have to just keep on working at it by the power of the Spirit as we are restored into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. But when you start putting love into practice, then verse 35 becomes a reality. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, just to see how thoroughly John took this to heart, would you turn to his first epistle, 1 John, and let's observe how deeply John absorbed this new command. And watch how he uses this new command to reorient 
how we think about those around us. I'm going to do little more than just read a whole series of text. All right, you've got to follow this. Let's go first to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 5. All right, and I'm just going to start reading. 1 John 2 and verse 5. But whoever keeps his word... In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. 2.10 Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. 3.10 By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 3.11 For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning in the upper room, that we should love one another. 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 317. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 23. And this is his commandment, the new commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Nine. In this, the love of God was manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Ten. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Eleven. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Twelve. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. 17. By this love perfect, by this love is By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. 18. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 19. We love because he first loved us. 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 21. And this commandment we have from him in the upper room, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. All right, would you say the Apostle John, who heard Jesus give the new command, identified love as the central ethical concern of the believer? I mean, how do you miss that? And now turn back to John, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 7. And let's deal with a slightly challenging passage. 1 John 2 and verse 7. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. All right? Now, when John says the old commandment is the word... All right, he's referring to a message, a message they heard from someone else. All right? However, in verse 8, John clarifies the old commandment or that message is, in fact, a new commandment. He's just said it's an old commandment, an old message that you heard, but at the same time, it's a new commandment. Are we confused? Well, look at the words from the beginning in verse 7. This refers to the beginning of the Christian faith, which from John's perspective was within his lifetime. John heard Jesus give the new commandment in the upper room in the beginning. But several decades have now elapsed since that fateful Passover night in Jerusalem. And that's why John can call that new commandment that he heard all those years ago the old commandment. He heard that a long time ago. So John wrote 1 John probably about half a century after Jesus' Last Supper. So for comparison, our church is 46 years old. All right, nearly 50 years old. And we refer to the older times at the beginning nearly 50 years ago. And I don't know whether the founding pastor, Hugh McCoy, ever preached on the New Commandment 46 years ago. I don't know. But if he did, I could recall us to remember that old command that Pastor McCoy preached half a century ago. Right? And I could say, remember that old command? All right? But in preaching it again today, it would be a brand new command. 
it would still be relevant for us all. That's the sense of what's happening here. John calls the new commandment the old commandment or vice versa because it is the same thing. Look at verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. John says it is a new commandment in the present tense, even though Jesus delivered it 50 years ago. You see? Simply put, the new commandment should never become merely an old commandment that is little more than a historical curiosity for church historians. Oh yeah, they used to have this command back then, right? The truth is, in centuries past, churches had all sorts of practices and beliefs that we would now regard as little more than historical curiosities. I could tell you all kinds of things that churches used to do, and you'd be like, that's interesting. We wouldn't do that today, all right? We wouldn't duplicate those things in 2023, but when it comes to the old commandment or the new commandment, all right, it is timelessly relevant. That's what John is saying, all right? It's never going to become some sort of old, antiquated commandment from churches of some bygone era. It needs to be renewed as the new commandment in every generation of a church. That's what John is getting at, all right? So with that in mind, can we return back to John chapter 13? And I want to take some time to really, really apply this, all right? I'm going to take on an issue that we take up from time to time. And I'm concerned that we actually do exactly what John exhorts us to do. And that is to renew our commitment to the new commandment, all right? Now, as I was thinking about this application, and I was thinking about our current church membership, I I suspect that this application maybe affects about half of us. I don't know. All right? But here's my question. How many of us have been misinformed about the central command of New Testament Christianity? Do we need any recalibration of our consciences on this point, any realignment. Many of us were raised in the context of fundamental churches which strongly emphasized separation, right? How often did you hear preaching about separation as opposed to love? Right? Again, I, I suspect that probably about half of you came out of a a traditional fundamental church, as did I. And just to be clear, I do not have any kind of personal vendetta against fundamentalism. All right? I believe in the fundamentals of the faith. You know that. All right? I also believe in biblical separation. It is taught in Scripture. So I speak not as an outside critic looking in, but as someone raised from within. But I do know that in looking back to the whole of church history that no movement is perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect church movement. And inevitably, the most difficult errors to detect are those of your own movement. So we have to be very careful and very nuanced about all this as we look, perhaps, at our own roots. And again, that's why I return to this issue from time to time, just to make sure that those of us who were discipled and raised in a fundamentalist context can really appreciate the great good that came out of fundamentalism. 
but also to avoid any theological pitfall there might be. And as I've said often, someday I am certain that our children and our grandchildren, hopefully mercifully, will correct their own mistakes. All right? And I, I am certain that some future pastor at UBC will, you know, correct something that I've said or done in error. I hope so. I really hope so. If not, shame on him. All right? Not that I'm publicly going to criticize some previous pastor. All right, but you know what I mean. All right. <laughs> As a university student, I was required to read a great deal of literature on separatism. We read a great deal in our Bible doctrines class. And through the years, I've interacted with respected pastors who are part of the fundamentalist organizations and that have really strong emphasized separatism. I recently just out of curiosity went on the website of a prominent fundamentalist organization, and I found a lot of good teaching there. Nevertheless, I do find issues of alarm. For example, a book that was required reading in my Bible doctrines class in the 1990s argued that pure, holy, separatist churches like modern, fundamental Baptist churches existed all through church history. And I did not realize it as an undergraduate, but many of the groups identified as separatists in that book were literally heretical groups. Now, the book was not written by a church historian, all right? But I'm talking about groups that actually denied the Incarnation, you know, but as long as they were separatists, they're kind of kosher. That's how it goes, right? Thousands of students read that same textbook. In graduate school, I went back and read the primary sources for those movements, and I was alarmed. The truth is that nearly every major movement of the whole of church history that has emphasized separatism as the central doctrinal concern of the church has ended up in heresy. I think I can demonstrate that. I won't do that now, but really any movement that just, you know, it was all about separatism, they wind up in heresy. And the reason is very simple. The New Testament has as much to say about unity as it does about separatism. And if you emphasize only one side, you're quickly going to get off balance theologically and over here into a ditch. And that's why just last year, if you recall, we very carefully revised our doctrinal statement to emphasize not merely separatism, but unity. We really did try to find the theological balance. Many, many heretical positions derive from a lack of theological balance. Nearly every Christological heresy in the early centuries came about when groups emphasized either the humanity or the deity of Jesus Christ without achieving the balance. The hypostatic union is a delicately balanced doctrine. Trinitarian heresies fail to embrace the unity and the plurality of the Godhead. Embrace the balance. Inspiration heresies fail to embrace the divine and human character of Scripture. Soteriological heresies fail to embrace the biblical emphases on human responsibility and divine sovereignty. And likewise, in my estimation, ecclesiological heresies fail to embrace the biblical balance between the doctrines of unity and separatism. That's how you get off. You've got to achieve that tension. And there is an imbalance that disturbs me when I visit some websites and read the publications of some fundamentalist organizations. What happens when I minimize biblical teaching on unity 
and emphasize separatism exclusively. Well, what that ends up looking like is I've just got to constantly be on the lookout to see whom I can separate from to make myself more holy. I start speaking the rhetoric of secondary and tertiary separation from people who don't even know I exist. I separate from someone who does not separate from someone whose endorsement showed up on a book with a Ford penned by the son-in-law of Billy Graham's music director. Like, I'm really holy. I attend conferences where we have endless discussions about you know, what goes on in some Southern Baptist church over here, but no discussion about how to get the gospel to all the world. It's like, really? Is that where your focus is supposed to be? Is it possible that this kind of posturing produces spiritual pride? Am I an obedient Christian because I practice separation from someone a thousand miles away, even though I've never confronted that individual? Imagine a Christian in Reno, Nevada. He's living out the Great Commission. He's winning people to Jesus Christ. He's discipling new believers. But none of that really matters because the music in his church is not quite as pure as the music in my church. So I consider myself separated from him. There, there are people who literally criticize the BGU administration for introducing intercollegiate sports. Like, this is abandoning separatism. Really? My Christian high school football coach deliberately scheduled as many games as he could with public schools. He insisted that we learn to be salt and light on the football field. Like, isn't that what we're supposed to do? And if you weren't willing to witness to an imposing player, if you weren't willing to give him a gospel track, he didn't want you on his team. Get off my team. Here's a very simple question. Is there such a thing as a false separatism? Well, the New Testament term translated Pharisee is derived from the Greek term Pharisaeos and the Aramaic term Parashaya. The term Pharisee, both in Greek and Aramaic, means literally set apart. Or separated. So need I say more? Is there a false separatism? If Jesus condemned the set-apart Pharisees, clearly there must be a kind of false separatism. And we dare not model our ecclesiology after the New Testament's greatest villains. And yet in my 46 years of hearing preaching in fundamental circles and reading fundamentalist literature, I, I frankly do not recall false separatism ever being discussed. And that strikes me as problematic. Now again, the New Testament does indeed clearly teach separation from worldliness. It teaches that from false teachers and from infidelity in the church. There's no question James is going to warn us on Wednesday night in James 4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All right? So I'm not abandoning separatism. Don't overcorrect. Right? Don't abandon separatism altogether. But if you emphasize only unity, you will wind up in heresy. And likewise, if you end up only, emphasize only separatism, you'll wind up in heresy. My concern is that separation is misimplied when it's elevated to the central ethical concern of the New Testament. Separation is not the new commandment. In my estimation, and I could be wrong, 
fundamentalism often situated separatism as the central virtue. Just look at the websites. Read the doctrinal statements. Do they emphasize separation at the expense of love? Do they balance separation with unity? That is the question. And there is a kind of reasoning in fundamentalism that I think is problematic. And it goes as follows. Separation leads to personal holiness. So far, so good. And holiness restores us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's true. Therefore, we need to constantly look for ways to separate from the world and other Christians who look like the world to keep ourselves holy. All right? And essentially, separation and holiness are conflated. They're one and the same. Look at the Old Testament. A holy God can't be approached by sinful mortals. We get that. If you touch the ark, you're dead. If you venture up the slopes of Mount Sinai, you're dead. God is utterly holy, separated from His creation. Holiness and separation are just intricately related. Or are they? We've got to be very, very careful here. If holiness is separation... From whom or what was God separated before the creation fell, before creation? If God's holy separatedness is His central attribute, as I was taught, from whom or from what was He separated in all eternity? Himself? The other members of the Trinity? The attribute that unites the Holy Trinity in perfect reciprocity of interest from all eternity is not separation. It is love. And that's why the heartbeat of the Old Covenant is to love God and love your neighbor. That's why the heartbeat of the New Covenant is the new command to love just as Jesus loved. Friends, if God was as separated from His creation as some fundamentalists allege, the Incarnation would have never occurred. In seeking to protect God's holiness, the Pharisees, the separatists, failed to understand the holy love of God that incarnated Jesus to call sinners into perfect union with Himself. It was love, not separation, that sent God's beloved Son into a squalid manger and into the home of publicans and prostitutes. It was love that brought God down to Mount Sinai in the Old Covenant. And it was love that brought God down even farther to a cross in the New Covenant. You touch the hem of Mount Sinai and you die. And you touch the hem of His garment and you live. And that's because love, not separation, is the heartbeat of the Gospel. So what did Jesus say ought to be our central ethical concern? Verse 35. It's right there. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you separate from one another. No. If you love one another. Love has to be our default approach to other Christians. Now again, the Bible does call for separatism in some circumstances. But on the balance, it seems to me the Bible's greater emphasis is on unity. And we will see that, especially when we come to John 17, and we hear that final ordination prayer. Or listen to Paul in Ephesians 4. 
I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, how? In love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. This is you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Friends, it's passages like this that really cause me to steer clear of some organizations. I've got to see that that organization maintains the proper biblical balance between separatism and unity. But how do you strike this right balance between unity and separation? The answer is neither separation nor unity should be the central ethical concern of the Christian. Love must remain our central ethical concern. Genuine Christian love will help us navigate the transition, or the tension, rather. And so there are times when genuine Christian love calls us to just have to separate from an erring brother. We do so in love. We do so hoping to restore that brother. And that, of course, should only happen after we have lovingly confronted him or her. So much of separation just fails to take that step of loving confrontation. It just doesn't happen. And there are times when genuine Christian love just tells us, look, we want unity here, so we're just going to overlook these differences. We're not going to make a big deal out of these because we're motivated by love. Love, then, is the balance. All right? And when love no longer balances out our attempts to really harmonize unity and separation, I think that we can really get distracted by all kinds of different issues. I had a student in my graduate church history course who recently sent me an email, and we had been discussing Donatism. Donatism was an ancient separatist movement back in Augustine's day, and it eventually became heretical because it abandoned any notion of unity. And we were discussing how to avoid becoming neo-Donatist. And here's what my student wrote. From my own experience and from what I see in broader fundamentalism, it appears that small Baptist churches are separating themselves to death. Their independence is their demise. It is heartbreaking to see churches that don't seek balance on this issue shrink and shrink and then eventually close their doors. I believe my own church that I work at now is crippled by our unwillingness to listen to and work with other like-minded churches, like-minded churches in our own community. At least it is comforting to know that this is not a new issue in church history. So where is the balance? It's right there in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. Now, you guys have been very patient with a long illustration, and let me just make one more quick application. All right? Joseph Singapogu has very often emphasized correctly that genuine gospel work happens inside community. You ever knock on someone's door and wonder why that person just doesn't immediately embrace the gospel? Well, maybe he's never been inside a Christian community where all the disciples love each other. Now, I'm not opposed to door-to-door visitation. My father came to Christ that way because someone had enough love to get out of bed and go knock on his door. Now, right? 
But that is increasingly an unusual way for people to meet Jesus. What does an unbeliever then see, though, when he comes into the community of believers? That's the question we ought to be asking. That community may be found in the church. It may be found out on the athletic field. It may be found in a private home. The location isn't so important. The community of believers is what's important. And as you see inside that community, believers figuring out how to separate from each other, or does he see them loving one another? What is he seeing? What the unbeliever needs to see in the community is love for one another. So let me just come right to the point. Our goal, and I think I speak for all the elders, but I didn't ask him before I preached this message. All right? I'll say me. All right? Probably all the elders. Our, our goal is not to make UBC the most separated church in all of Clemson. All right? Although separatism is biblical. Our goal is not to be the most fundamental of the fundamentalist churches in our area. That is not our goal. Our goal is actually to create a Christian community by which all people will know that we are Jesus' disciples when we have love for one another. All right? Okay, how are we doing? Okay. You may be here today, and this may be an unusual sermon for you. You may be an unbeliever, and you're thinking, do they always talk like this when you go inside those churches? The answer is no, all right? But we do have to talk about love from time to time inside the church context. Uh, And if you're wondering why that is, it's because Christians are fallen and we are broken people and we don't love as we should. All right? And you may have been in a Christian community before and you thought, you know, I didn't see a whole lot of love there. And I am very, very sorry that that happened. And it could have happened here. And I'm very sorry that happened. But, you know, we're here because we're sinners, not because we're perfect. Right? That's why we gather here. We gather here because we're sinners, not because we're perfect. And we just want to do a better job. So if you're here today and you're an unbeliever and you've just been sort of chased away from Christianity because you didn't see love there, let me encourage you to come back and look at the person of Jesus Christ. He is the person that is altogether lovely. And we have yet to do a good enough job to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ. And we hope that our personal testimony to you will not be a distraction to you coming to Christ. Jesus Christ loves the sinner and gave his life for the sinner. All right? And that includes you, my friend. So we pray, Father, we thank you for the love of Christ. We pray that it would love and motivate and change us today. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. And just closed, inviting you to consider Jesus Christ, that our eyes would not be on individuals, um, but on Christ himself. And this hymn that we'll close our service with is an invitation for you to consider Christ. If you're a believer in him, would you consider him daily? If you're not a believer in him, would you consider the one who sacrificed himself for you and place your faith in him? Let's stand together as we exalt Christ through this gospel story.
time will be dismissed to a time of fellowship. I invite all of you to attend uh, that. Invite someone around you to join you for that. That'll be in the building just to my right. And then at 11.15, our shepherding classes uh, will begin. Children and youth are in uh, this building across the breezeway, as well as our intro class. If you're new to UBC or you're interested in more information about our church, you can head right across the breezeway. First door on the right is our conference room, and Brent will lead that class this morning. And then our adult classes, international and college and young adult uh, Bible study shepherding classes will meet here in the fellowship building at 11.15. May you join us for that and continue fellowshipping in the name of Christ. You are dismissed.